0: Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Hebron Building in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, this is 106.5 FM, Forward Radio. Uh, you can find out a little bit more about our station if you go to forwardradio.org. And we're live streaming now, so if you go to that website, uh, you can click on a button and listen to us anywhere in the world. Folks, uh, before we get to the body of our show, uh, I do want to uh, mention that Cahantas, uh Rowe, a Louisville native, died in Phoenix, Arizona on March 6, 2021. Born June 18, 1979, to Sharice Malone and Douglas Wilson. Um, Cahontas was a graduate of Doss High School, a Navy veteran, and had a doctrine in metaphysics. Employed as a cybersecurity manager for trap technology and a martial arts instructor at Premier Martial Arts School. Contributions in her memory can be made to the Cabbage Patch Settlement House, www.cabbagepatch.org. And just want to mention as well that Cahontas, uh did at one time work for the Fairness Campaign, legendary civil rights organization in Louisville, premier uh, gay rights organization in the country. So uh, Cajantas Life Journey Memorial, This Is Me, will be held on Saturday, June 26, 2021, at 1 p.m. at Spirit Field New Life Church Ministries, 4936 Hazelwood Avenue, Louisville, Kentucky, 40214. Folks, we've got a great show for you today. We've got uh, uh, Michael T. here with us. Say hello to the people, Michael. Hello, people. So Michael T. is uh, a sort of a well-known uh, playwright, author, uh, activist, a uh, 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 gentleman who's lived in many cities across the country and has uh, uh, and has dealt with many, many issues, uh, political, economic, and social over the many years. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, critical race theory. So, uh, Michael, share with us some of the things that uh, your thoughts on critical race
1: theory. Gladly. Uh, First of all, I think uh, we need to know what it is exactly, and... I'm no expert on it, but like all important theories that emerge, uh, I've tried to grasp the essence of it. And it's an academic concept that uh, first emerged in the 1970s. Uh, It was associated with the writings of Derrick Bell, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, and a guy named um, Richard Delgado, It was initially concerned with providing a legal framework for analyzing systemic racism uh, in law and uh, in other institutions. Like uh, they grappled with the whole notion of redlining and housing discrimination and how that has legally worked. But um, the recent inevitable backlash to what's being characterized as critical race theory um, I think must be understood as the latest reluctance and resistance movement to dismantling the traditional dominant white nationalist historical narrative uh, specifically and dismantling an opposition to dismantling the white nationalist empire that we know as the United States of America. And um, I know that that sounds a little provocative to some people, but I think that's what it uh, boils down to uh, when we look at um, the whole white nationalist project itself which uh, was established um, in the colonial period, specifically the British colonialism. Uh, uh, For many of us, um, that was primarily driven by the need of the capitalistic slave owners to enlist and to encourage the collaboration of all the classes of white folks in their slavery project. You know, not for all of them to own slaves because we know there were a considerable number of, uh, a considerably uh, small number of big slave owners. Even though I read recently, I should mention that here in Kentucky, it tended to be more spread out. I've read where you had uh, a larger number of white folks in, as opposed to some of the other colonies and cities who had, like, single slaves, you know, one or two slaves. Uh, so it was a, a larger percentage of the population that uh, it was involved in the hideous project. But generally, um, most of the enslaved people were on plantations, you know, of 50 or more people. And those slave owners ran the show but to keep the show going, which was so lucrative for them, not even most white folks in the colonial period, they had to enlist and encourage the support of the poor white laborers and settlers. And they did that systematically through instituting and promoting white supremacy. And for those who doubt that, you know, much of this can be actually. Documented um, when we look at the the whole evolution of the U.S. state. I mean, e- even though that the Constitution itself didn't mention anything about establishing a white nationalist state, but they did by the omission. But they were clever enough to not stipulate that, even though the very people who established the nation-state were primarily slave owners, white slave owners. It wasn't even poor white folks. It was slave owners. And um, we see, um, despite that omission, um, the naturalization laws that developed under the Adams administration specifically said that Citizenship was contingent On being white White males Were citizens So that excluded a whole lot of women Which is another source of the contention With this whole uh, Critical race theory And then as we move up through the years We see the expansion of the white nationalist project And what I mean by that Again is that this was Primarily A nation The United States of America that was set up by white people for white people, specifically uh, rich white people, and to keep them empowered. But we saw as we moved into the 19th century the expansion of that project into Mexico. Many folks have just now come to see that almost all of, of the Western states were part of the Mexican state. And during the Mexican-American War, half of Mexico was taken and incorporated into the white nationalist state. And then we saw the expansion into the former Spanish colonies uh, in Central and South America, the Philippines, were the same descendants of the white nationalists as part of their expansion was to take those things. But um, we know that like everything, there was opposition to this whole notion of this being a white nationalist state. Um, we saw an abolitionist movement develop in the 19th century um, that you know, initially you know began as a struggle against the enslavement of African American people, but was driven in part by the radical notion that. African Americans had a right to citizenship here. You know, that was the whole purpose of the, you know, the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment, which supposedly granted us citizenship, and the 15th Amendment, which supposedly gave us the right to vote. But we see that despite all of the, the multicultural attempts to enact those amendments... And to recognize the citizen or civil and human rights of African Americans, the white nationalist project, which was not totally defeated through the Civil War. I mean, they were militarily defeated. But it was not totally defeated. You know, there's a case to be made that they won the political war and white nationalism was reconsolidated through the Klan and other social forces that uh, were allowed to exist. And many of them got right back into power. Now, and as we moved into the 20th century, we saw that... Um, even though there were people who perhaps, you know, would not have called themselves white nationalists, um, they'd have no problem calling themselves capitalists, but maybe, you know, they're not white nationalists now. But whatever they were, they tolerated the white nationalism. There was never any concerted effort to crush that sentiment, to reverse what was started with the inception of the country. And... Um, And it created a lot of contradictions, but we saw in the early days of the 20th century, in response to that reconsolidation of white nationalism, we saw the emergence of a civil rights movement based, again, on the contingent that the formerly enslaved people who had created most of the wealth in this country had a right to citizenship, if anybody had a right to citizenship, we did, and we had a right for our human rights beyond the citizenship question, as Malcolm X points out, um, to be recognized. So we had this emerging civil rights movement. You know, the NAACP form, uh, um, establishing you know in the early part of the 20th century, and other groups, uh, National Urban League. Uh, White nationalism, as many times we've seen, created black nationalism. Black people who were so disenchanted by the possibilities of their human rights being recognized and their citizenship rights being recognized. So, you know, they said, well, we're gonna create our own black nation. Uh, Many of us feel that was like not really feasible. And as much as it was understandable, that could objectively abdicate our rights to citizenship in the country that we primarily built. Why should we have to go build another country after we've provided the raw labor for the white quote unquote nation? You know, so when you look at that civil rights movement, then And now you see that, you know, whatever the debates and controversies around that and the conflicting views, uh, underlining view has always been that at the very least, you know, our citizenship rights and our human rights should be uh, respected. And that movement continued on, as we know, you know, that movement for those rights and the recognition of those rights and culminated in a massive movement post-World War II, with the reconsolidation of the civil rights movement uh, in the 50s and the 60s. And just like now, and after the Civil War, there was a white backlash to that. The white nationalist forces, you know, rather than concede that yes, these people do have a right after all these years and centuries, we need to give it up and recognize whether we like them or not, that they have a right to citizenship here. They earned that right. Nobody gave us anything. But instead of that, there was a significant white backlash. That didn't include all the white folks. I mean, just you know, like in the abolitionist movement, we had white allies. But unfortunately, we had just as many enemies and who rallied around the white nationalist movement. And we can see, K.A., okay, between... You know, the 70s, where some gains were made, and I would say that we delivered some powerful blows to the white nationalist project and movement, but it didn't defeat it. What we did uh, manage to do uh, after a long struggle against Jim Crow was to illegalize the white nationalism and the Jim Crow and the discrimination And the desegregation, what was legal before, upheld by the state, just like slavery, because of the powerful multicultural blows of the civil rights, black power, human rights movement of the 50s and 60s and early 70s. We were able to, in a sense, sort of break the back of it. But it was broken, but not out. And again, we saw that white backlash with Reagan. And between that time, the way I see it, there was a lot of back and forth. You know, we would go, we would make several steps forward and be pushed back, back and forth, until the election of a black president. And there are many social activists who have analyzed that development as the the rallying cry for another white nationalist backlash. We saw it with the emergence of the Tea Party and Trump. And uh, as you said in a conversation earlier, uh, you said that uh, this is sort of like their last stand, you know, Custer's last stand. And um, And if you listen to talk radio and Fox News, that's pretty much what they're saying. Yeah, you know, the, the line now is that this is not only about um, the uh, you know, stopping critical race theory, as they call it, but stopping the dismantling of the white nationalist project itself, which they do not want to let go of. That's the major problem they have with liberals. As much as many of them are not necessarily opposed to the White Nationalist Project. I mean, it doesn't affect some of them that much. Some of them have material interest in it. And there are many who have turned their back on it, who reject it. But you can see now that the hardcore White Nationalists are now targeting even the liberal sector, saying that, you know what, we ain't got time to play with you guys, because you're allowing these Negroes to do this, you're allowing them to dismantle white nationalism you're preventing us from making america great again you're not equipped to rule anymore we need the hardcore white nationalists white nationalists right wing in control now and they're saying that unequivocally and as we saw with the january siege that you know in their attack you know in their threats to kill nancy pelosi And even Mike Pence, one of their own, that has gotten so fanatical that they're not beyond doing that. But I think it it behooves us to recognize what we're up against and not be lulled into some false security because of the Biden administration being in power. I'm not so sure that a lot of them understand the extent of the threat, notwithstanding what they saw on January sixth. Believe me, I think a lot of them were shook up, you know, because they they didn't go in the Capitol, you know, even though they, uh, according to the, what I heard about, you know, from the um, testimony of a lot of the black security guards, you know, called the N word all day that day, and attacked, but they didn't go in there primarily. To attack black people. They went in there to attack what they perceived as the white liberal capitulation to black people and oppressed people. That's what they saw. Because if you you know, when you look at the whole opposition to Black Lives Matter, the fact that anybody would be opposed a movement called Black Lives Matter. That's not even talking about black lives dominate, black lives take over. Black Lives Matter which is sadly another indication of how much we don't matter and how much we've had to fight just to matter as people. The white nationalist contingent in this country sees the recognition of even that as an affront. To white nationalism. They'd rather not even talk about that. Because when you start talking about Black Lives Matter, that leads into black history and the whole history of the relationship between people here. And it exposes the hideousness and the violence and the lack of democracy in the white nationalist project that goes against everything that the country is supposed to stand for. So that's where we are today, uh, I think, uh, K.A.
0: Well, um, the late Blaine Hudson, uh, Dr. Blaine Hudson, passed away a few years ago. He was the first dean of arts and sciences, African-American dean of arts and sciences at the University of Louisville. And uh, he said that uh, history is not always progressive. He said Mm. that human society goes backwards as frequently as it moves forward. And I, I agree with Dr. Hudson on that.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: we have to be very careful in times like these. Uh, on another uh, on a Zoom call the other day, I brought up the fact that uh, in the Weimar Republic that existed uh, mm-hmm. uh, in Germany between uh, World War One and the uh, rise of Nazism, uh, it was very progressive, as you would say. I mean, you had very successful... Jews, entrepreneurs—you uh, mm-hmm. had, uh, you, know, you know, gay people running all over the place and doing everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Hitler rose to power, uh, he wiped it all away, mm-hmm. just extinguished it. Uh, all the, all that, uh, what we would call progressivism, and he, you see he so he extinguished many extinguished it. And so, uh, I would like that is, I think that the people who refer to themselves as conservatives today. Uh, that's what they're interested in that as many of them want to take the united states to you know back before 1954 uh that is their interest they want to extinguish you know uh, uh yeah uh, women's right to choose uh, gay rights trans rights uh uh brown black anything yeah uh and that's uh, an
1: important notion you just raised because so that's with,
0: what they want to do.
1: Yeah, because with the insurgence, you mentioned 1954, the year I was born. You know, um, I think that has uh, always had some meaning in my life when, uh, when I you know, look at the history. But with the, with the resurgence of the civil rights, human rights movement of the 50s, and particularly the 60s, we saw an unprecedented convergence of various social justice movements where you had gay and women's rights and other oppressed nationalities coming together, which was another serious threat to the white nationalist project. You know, they saw that. Oh, boy, with that type of alliance and all these other forces coming into play, that we're doomed. But they managed to survive that because, I mean, and this is a, would require a whole other program. You know, there were splits and breaks and factions in even that that progressive movement um, that you know and the pushback that uh, made that fall short and it uh, facilitated a certain empowering or re-empowering of the white nationalist movement. And I think it's critical for the audience to know that white nationalism, serves first and foremost the white elite, the capitalist class, the people with money, as it did in the beginning. we talked about this many times. I mean, even the colonial period, it wasn't as if the slave owners were sharing their massive amount of wealth with poor white folks. If it was really true to what it claimed, all the white folks would be wealthy. But it was never about abolishing class distinctions and inequalities even among white folks. Again, it was all about encouraging them and enlisting them in the capitalist project. And the only way they could really do that was to play on the white identity. When they talk about identity politics, and it's used in a very pejorative kind of way to talk about you know, bl- uh, black people and gay people and other types of social identities asserting their rights. But really, the, the identity politics of any significance, the most lethal, the most destructive, and the dominant identity in this country has always been white supremacy and nationalism. So that's why I reject that term, because it's a, it's a deflection. Because if you notice, the only time you mostly hear identity politics it's not about Trump or what he represents or what the Klan represents. They use that to talk about, well, you know, Farrakhan or, you know, some gay rights advocate. Like, that's the problem. Now, no matter whatever type of reactionary response that a, a, a person like a Farrakhan or, you know, someone promoting... Uh, you know, that my identity is greater than somebody else's. We know that materially, the the identity which has caused the most havoc in this country and in the world, because it has power, not Farrakhan, not Code Pink, not some bourgeois feminist, is... The white male dominated white nationalism. That has been the nationalism that has been most lethal. And if we're going to make progress in this country, as I tell a lot of my leftist friends, rather than obscuring that and overlooking that or, you know, singing kumbaya, black and white, unite and fight, you know, which are not bad things to sing, first and foremost, we got to sing the song that denounces white nationalism. and and point out that white nationalism is antithetical to all of our interests. We'll never make any progress unless we slay that dragon.
0: So, folks, we've been talking to Michael T. today. Uh, Michael T. has been talking uh, uh, initially about... uh, critical race theory but he went to how critical race theory uh is is interconnected with some of the other things that are going on and uh uh how one group of people is using uh that uh just as a note you know critical race theory is not taught K through 12 anywhere that I know <laughs> of and so uh it's, you know it's it undergrad college maybe uh, depending on what course you're taking, uh, and then maybe in some law schools, originally was there was a theory applied to uh, legal studies. Yes. So it's uh, something that you know most people will never be taught. So uh, yeah. But. Uh,
1: uh, but the problem is that a lot of people don't want anything taught about the true history exactly. of this country. So they don't they, care what it's called. They <laughs> they
0: think critical race theory is uh, a catch-all for any kind of uh, black or multicultural. Exactly, study. So that's what it folks is. Folks who are against it are against all of it, even even though they don't know what it is they're against. It's kind of like communism. They don't know what that is. Yes, and, uh, but they know they don't like it. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And the ones who,
1: who are leading that movement They know what it portends, because once you pull that particular thread in the system, that white nationalism thread, it has the potential to unravel everything else. It's like something you've always said, and I totally agree. More and more I think about it, that if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else will confuse you. That was a
0: quote from Neely Fuller. A <laughs> Famous quote that is that if, if those of you Still who uh, uh, ever take the, like the first class in Pan-African studies or black studies anywhere, uh, you'll uh, be taught that.
1: That's the linchpin of the system.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, folks, this is Forward Radio 106.5 FM. You've been listening to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. And uh, our guest has been Michael T. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. On The Edge broadcast Friday at 5.30, Saturday at 2.30 p.m., Sunday at 12 noon, and Monday at 7 a.m. On Forward Radio 106.5 FM.